Hello, and welcome to Laidback Lush. My name is Michael, and this is... This is Gabe. Uh, today we're going to be talking about major grape varietals. So we're going to be covering some whites and some reds, Chardonnay, Sauvignon Blanc, Riesling, and then Cabernet, Pinot Noir, Merlot, and Syrah, just to name a few. Another thing we wanted to do is just go over a little bit of a summary of our last episode, as well as some winemaking basics and the climate impact on wine style. So as far as our, our recap on our last episode, Gabe, if you wanted to just tell us a quick summary about which steps are involved in tasting wine. Yeah, so after the last episode, we both kind of agreed that, well, you know, we we liked how we did the tasting. We kind of realized we kind of blew through the actual yeah. structured part of that. So just to give you a list on what you can look for when you're tasting wine is first start out with the appearance of the wine, check the color, check clarity of the wine. Um, that can tell you a lot about age on a wine. Obviously, it'll tell you if it's red, white, or rosé wine. There's a lot you can glean on that. Um, then, you know, obviously smell the wine, take the nose of the wine, see what you're smelling. Uh, after you taste it, you want to look for sweetness. You want to look for your acidity. You want to look for your tannin. You want to look for your alcohol and kind of from all of those combined, assess the body of the wine. And if you're drinking a sparkling wine, you want to pay attention to the bubbles or the mousse, as it's called. The effervescence. The effervescence of the, the wine. Uh, we didn't really discuss that last episode, but in general, the finer the beads are in the wine, kind of the more they're going to persist as you're drinking it. They're not going to go flat as quickly as, say, uh, a lot of Prosecco tends to have larger yeah. beads. Prosecco tends to go flat quicker. So that's kind of something to look for in a sparkling wine. I would say wine. probably the, the biggest, because you can also see it as like how big the bubbles are. So it's if the bubbles are super big, I've seen that in like a good Sorbello, which is typically going to be a, an infused type of, of sweet wine from Italy. Mm -hmm. uh, then you can have something like Prosecco where you're getting a little bit finer. Then you can go to your your uh, your cavas. Those are going to be a bit finer than that. Yeah. And then you have these super fine, beautiful bubbles inside of Champagne and uh, Cremant de Bergeron. Yeah. Um, which, if you've never had Cremant de Bergeron, highly recommend it. It's just basically Champagne style wines from Burgundy. Pinot Noir is my favorite grape in a in a sparkling. Just as a little side note, <laughs> <laughs> it's good to know. If anybody ever wants to buy Michael a Christmas gift, <laughs> yes. Yes, actually, I wasn't thinking from that angle, but now that he's mentioned it. <laughs> so if you're listening, make sure you send it to uh, whatever our P.O. box will be in the future, I guess. <laughs> very tempted to make many jokes. <laughs> and uh, kind of to finish up for tasting, finish of the wine, how long those flavors are persisting on your palate, and are they the good flavors that you want to be persisting, or is it... A wine where it's super acidic and it doesn't have much else going for it. And after 10 seconds, you're just tasting acid. That would not be a good finish. So yeah. just kind of assess the quality of that finish. After Whereas you're done a, good, drinking. a good finish would be more along the lines of you still have a lot of florality. You're mm -hmm. able to smell a little bit through your nose as you exhale. Mm -hmm. um, those are those are kind of the positive things that, that can be associated with a nice long finish. Yeah. All right, so moving on, uh, we were talking about some winemaking basics. We just want to give you a general idea of kind of the process from, from vine to bottle. 
Uh, so, Gabe, I know this is a place of particular interest and passion for you. It is. Uh, so as yes. far as the growing process, I used to uh, work on a, on a vineyard for a little bit just with the growing things. Mm-hmm. But once it gets into the once it gets into these large containers uh, in order to be shipped off to the wine facility, what's going on there? So when you're harvesting wines, they kind of have two methods in most places. You have your machine harvesting in areas where it's feasible. Harvesting with a machine can be a cost saving measure as well uh, with hand harvesting Unless you're running purely on volunteer work, normally you're having to pay those people to pick those grapes. And it is labor intensive. It's very labor intensive. But in a lot of places, it also produces a higher quality wine. So it's a a decision the producer is going to have to make based off of the resources available to them. Also Also, the terrain. Yes, I was about to say. So like in Mosul, for example, it is impossible to machine harvest because those vines in Mosul are planted along a river and it's a very steep slope. Yeah. And even I've heard that in some places in Mosul, even the people that are harvesting the grapes have to have... um, like harnesses yeah. <laughs> attached to them so they don't fall in the river because it's so steep so oh, yeah if you if you get a chance you definitely need to look up pictures of that it's yeah. weird to look at these people who look like goats on the side yeah. of a mountain just yeah. like going after it so when you have machine harvesting available you're typically in a flat area wide spaces between your vines uh, it the machines that are used to harvest are pretty interesting they basically have these big um or the ones i've seen have these big tubes i guess that just kind of knock the vines and knock the grapes off the vines Mm -hmm. and so this is a quality thing you'll get a lot of debris in those wines as well and if you're not hand sorting after you've harvested so hand sorting is once those grapes get to Mm -hmm. the winery some producers again as a quality measure will look at getting people to sort through the grapes as they're coming in off the truck to look for grapes that are burst um, prematurely, maybe, or grapes that are rotten or um, any number of things that the producer might not want. And debris is one of those things. Mm-hmm. Um, so even if you're uh, machine harvesting, you can still you can still make a quality wine without all that debris. But some producers for like very high volume brands and stuff will just kind of back a truck up to a fermentation facility and just dump it into a tank yeah. and it was machine harvested so all that debris is in there it's actually interesting that you mentioned that because that's even uh, an element within coffee you uh, mm-hmm. if it's machine harvested it actually they can't tell the difference between ripe and unripened fruit yeah so uh you get a lot of differences in the quality of the beans simply because of that mm-hmm. um in the case of uh like riesling also though you have those super steep cliffs that need to be hand harvested Mm -hmm. one interesting thing to know is that it's not just the grapes themselves though that end up being harvested it's also the stems Mm -hmm. Um, and in some cases uh you'll get more than just uh the little bit of the stems that are growing out of the vines you'll also get parts of the actual i guess you would call them branches um and so that's actually being collected well and will will add to the flavor of the wine uh, mm-hmm. at different percentages. Yeah, typically they're also not really flavors you would want in most wines. Yeah. Uh if you've ever had a wine that had like a really odd uh stem 
no it's like a like really a bitter, astringent green yeah. flavor um it also will affect the tannins because stems yeah. wood has tannin in it as well as grape skins and seeds so it's putting unripe tannins into the wine as well mm-hmm. and those are that biting astringent overly astringent texture so you want to if you are hand sorting you typically want to take that out yeah and, uh, as far as our uh after we've harvested so we've we've gotten it uh let's just say we've hand harvested this uh we've selected it what's our next step so after that you are going to want to press your wine and there's several different methods to do that kind of the more modern technique is there's these big machines that they have now that have basically an inflatable bladder on the inside and Ooh, can, i haven't heard about this yeah so back in the day you had these presses that were just cranks mm-hmm. that would press a slab down into a basket yeah and you would press grapes that way they actually still do that in champagne um in certain other areas of the mm-hmm. world uh, but these more modern machines, uh, one of them kinds has a, a big bladder in this big tube and you put the grapes in the tube and the tube is perforated and the bladder fills with air and expands and presses the grapes that way. And the reason you're doing that, particularly for white wine, is if you're making a white wine like a Sauvignon Blanc where so when you're making white wine. If you want to make kind of the very clean, aromatic wines that we're accustomed to, you don't really want grape skins in contact no. with the juice as much as you can help because that will impart more flavors that you might not want and potentially off flavors yeah. that kind of distract from the very like high tone floral aromatics or that kind of bright acidity. It yeah. can be kind of put off balance. There's mm-hmm. there's one wine that I know of that goes in the opposite direction it's it's considered the wine of zeus yeah well, but that's such a that's like one example out of so yeah. many white wines where they really just don't want contact with the grape mm-hmm. skins during during any sort of fermentation and orange wines are very popular right now but uh we could probably just do a whole thing on orange wines because yeah, that's um, that's actually more niche than its popularity would yeah would suggest so when we're when we're looking at pressing these grapes we kind of want to make sure that they're not being exposed to too many parts of the grape skins or stems to prevent any of those flavors from getting in the wine that we don't want. So these big pneumatic presses, since they can do it in a much more gentle way, that's kind of how they're used. Yeah. Um, and r- red wines can be pressed the same way, but maybe just not as gently. Um, and yeah, because with those, we are wanting to have contact with the with the skins. Yeah. And, and in most cases, that's actually where the color is coming from. The, yeah, the juice and, comes out clear and then mm-hmm. it's stained. Yeah, and you're actually fermenting on the skins for yeah. most red wines as well. Yeah. So that's what pressing is for. And then a short step after pressing that, again, this is – much, much, much more common for red wines than it is for white wines um, is a maceration either before the fermentation or after the fermentation. So fermentations can only happen within certain temperature ranges because the yeast will just go dormant if it's too cold. And if you keep the grape juice after you've pressed it and it's on that grape skins, if you keep it cold enough, the yeast won't activate yet and it won't start the fermentation, but you will be getting a very gentle extraction of some of the flavors that are in the skins and potentially the stems if you're uh, keeping the grapes on the stems as well. Um, and that can also give the wine fuller body because uh, it's adding more particulate 
matter mm-hmm. into the wine adds some deeper character to the wine in terms of flavors as well uh but again for whites uh it's more common for grapes like chardonnay or um your your white grapes that can kind of handle or already have those more deep flavors mm-hmm. for again your sauvignon blancs and your rieslings and your like viognets that are much more about like floral aromatics or the high tone notes um probably not going to be seeing that as much but again that's also a producer choice yeah and in certain cases like with new zealand for their sauvignon blanc they are mechanically harvesting Mm -hmm. it goes ahead and it typically will burst a lot of the grapes beforehand Mm -hmm. and then they are kept cold and they're allowed to macerate for a very long time yeah and that adds a lot of that grassiness that Mm -hmm. that people really go for that that big boisterous lemon zest grassiness yep so if you have ever had a Sauvignon Blanc, which which many, especially uh, in our generation, really enjoy that, that's a good example of how that particular practice can impact the flavor of wine. Yep. Moving on to uh, the process of fermentation, when we're talking about fermenting, uh, you have yeast that is extracting the sugars inside of the grape juice, and it's converting that into alcohol. And of course, when you have that conversion into alcohol, you're also having a different extraction from the grape peels if they're present and even the stems if they're present. Uh, And those both are going to have tremendous impact on the flavor of the wine, especially red wines. And you can go a little bit more into that. Yeah, so tannin in particular is much more solvent in an alcoholic environment than it is going to be in just the grape juice itself. Yeah, and so, so solvency, we're we're talking about basically the ability for uh, a medium, uh, in this case alcohol, in order to actually pull out compounds, yes. um, esters, mm-hmm. things inside of of the wine that uh, that are are present but aren't available to the palate. Yeah. So tannin is one of those things that, as the wine becomes more alcoholic as it's fermenting it pulls more of that out so for grapes like Cabernet Sauvignon that are kind of known for high tannins typically they will um, run a fermentation that will be long enough to extract as much tannin as they can also white wines and red wines are fermented in general at different temperatures Um, I cannot remember the exact temperatures off the top of my head uh, but just know whites tend to be on the cooler side of fermentation, particularly because floral aromas and like mineral aromas blow off very quickly at higher temperatures. And if you're making a wine where that's kind of the point of the wine, you're going to want to ferment at a cooler uh, rate because you don't want those to burn off before it ever even gets to the bottle, if that's what you want people drinking in the first place. Uh, reds tend to be higher that's a spectrum as well so like your pinot noirs and your gamets uh or what have you where the flavors maybe are a little bit more delicate you're gonna run them at the cooler end of a red wine fermentation whereas your cabernet sauvignons and your syrahs uh, and like your mouveds and grenaches that have more character are gonna run hotter yeah. on that scale because Heat will also help extract more of that tannin and flavor out of the wine that you want to be there. Yeah, different uh, different wine varietals, and we'll go into this a little bit later, but they they shine with different rates of extraction. So in the case yeah. of 
of Gamay, you're definitely wanting to have a bit more of those bright uh, notes, whereas with you know a, a Cabernet, you can actually be getting even coffee mm-hmm. uh, as a note. And so you, you want those warmer temperatures in order to be able to get those deep tones out of it, uh, a flavor that you can really chew on. Yeah. Now, as far as uh, clarification and stabilization, we're talking about uh, a couple of different things mm-hmm. uh, that go into what makes different wines their wines. And this is really what can solidify yeah. um, what style that a winemaker is is going for. Yeah. So with clarifying, clarifying can be as little as just letting the fine lees, which are the spent yeast cells, settle out of the wine solution in whatever the fermentation vessel is and you rack it off or mm-hmm. racking is just the term for pulling the wine off of that. Now, and, and what notes are we are we extracting in the middle of that would you say uh when it's on the lees you mean mm-hmm. um so for red wines you're probably not even going to notice it mm-hmm. um white wines will tend to give bready pastry aromas i mean just kind of think of what yeast goes in so like bread dough and pastry dough um, and those are the flavors you'll typically get from mm-hmm. a wine that is on its lees a lot of Chardonnays use this in, yeah. in order to get their their more bready elements, which is why they, they do go so well when they're also buttery. Exactly. So that's kind of like the very minimum of what you can do to clarify a wine because it's basically just letting out whatever particles are causing that cloudiness to settle out a solution. Then you can start going into filtration and uh, most producers will filter their wine. The intensity of that Filtration process varies from producer to producer. Some producers think that overly filtering a wine strips it of its character. On that note, it's also not always as uh, microbiologically stable. So remember that, you know, wine comes from grapes. Grapes are a living organism and wine is can definitely be considered an, a living organism. Yeast and bacteria live in wine and you want to make sure that If you're getting a wine that's going to sit on a shelf before it's bought and then sit in someone's house before they drink it, that it's not going to spoil in the bottle from bacteria, contamination, or or what have you. So, Which, if you've ever had a spoiled bottle of wine, it's one of the most disappointing things. Yeah, Yeah. and you will know. You will know that it's spoiled. You will not want to drink it. Yeah, this isn't going to be one of those things where it's just like, well, I think it's an acquired taste. It's going to be like, this was repulsive. And I almost immediately got a headache. <laughs> yeah. So you're going to know. So don't worry about not knowing. Um, but so filtering will help filter out bacteria and things that could spoil the wine. To but, stabilize it. Yeah. So as we're talking about uh, clarifying these wines, what sort of notes are we trying to get out of a wine when we are not clarifying it as much? We want to preserve. It's kind of about preserving more depth of character in the wine mm. the the flavors i can't really think of any off the top of my head that are like uh particular to that method of clarification it's more about uh you know it gives more body because it you're not filtering out as many particles in the wine so you have more texture there um you also are maybe some of the more heavier aromas so maybe more of your uh, fruit flavors those kind of esters or from oak aging some of those qualities might uh, stick around a little bit better if you're not 
filtering your wines. Um, but when producers do choose to filter their wines, it is a more of a, we were talking about a microbiological stability issue. Um, you know, wine uh, does, you know, change and evolve over time. And when you have the ability to, um, you know, ensure that your product is going to uh, stay on a shelf for longer, you might be willing to sacrifice some of the, um, you know, textural elements and, and maybe some of those flavors that mm. would go away with filtering your wine more. And, you know, you can do a rough filter and just kind of get out sediment and stuff. Yeah. And not really affect the wine that much. But this is more like a high volume producer driven thing yeah um, they'll, they'll just really filter their wines and they'll find them as well which is like an additional filtration process that takes even more out of the wine uh, down to bacteria so you know you're ensuring that you're having a self-stable wine shelf stable wine but it's you know there's it's it's a producer thing and again there's debate on what should or shouldn't be done in that situation and uh who your target audience is so so as far as as far as bottling is concerned, as far as aging is concerned, we've we've now covered how we might keep a wine mm -hmm. from spoiling. But what are some of the the methods? What are some of the uh, intentions? And what are some of the reactions that are happening in the wine as they're aging? Uh, so this is kind of something that I have not studied a whole lot, so I'm not super knowledgeable on it. But I know even you know the people that study how wine evolves in in your bottle it is um not very well understood mm -hmm. at the moment uh we do know in the bottle things like we mentioned in the last episode how tannins will bind together yeah and form longer chains that happens in the bottle if the wine wasn't filtered heavily you might get sediment port vintage ports in particular are, are kind of known for having pretty thick deposits of sediment it's a lot more common in red wines yeah, uh, then and you also ones. get a lot of uh, color changes that that will occur as mm -hmm. and, uh, there's actually whole studies and whole fields of, of practice that are done just for designing the perfect cork. Yeah. And so as it's as uh, a red wine in particular is aging, you'll actually have a lot of that brighter purple uh, color being extracted into the cork itself as it uh, as it reacts with the oxygen coming through because it's not a it's not a completely sealed off thing it's actually it's it's permeable yeah uh, it's permeable to oxygen which that slow introduction of oxygen is what uh, ends up allowing those chains to be to be formulated mm -hmm. in the tannins softening those tannins so they're not so much like I am licking the inside of a tree as much as it is just this nice velvety or soft or whatever texture it ends up developing into yeah uh you mentioned the color change so when you have a wine that is aging and this happens in barrel too this doesn't just happen in the bottle mm -hmm. um you're going to get more orange to brown yeah and as the wine gets older you'll notice that so you know you get wines that are kind of like garnet in color which is something to notice when you're tasting a wine that color becoming more clear becoming browner that's actually going to, in many cases, tell you about the age of the wine itself mm -hmm. as far as bottling is concerned. And also, the longer it's in bottle, th this is why certain wines just don't age well. Or part this is part of why certain wines don't age well. 
is like floral characters. And again, like you were talking about earlier with fermentation and fermenting at too high of a temperature for mm-hmm. wines that have that character, that falls out of a wine uh, a lot quicker than other flavors will. So if you have, you know, a Pinot Grigio or something that's, you know, supposed to just kind of be bright and, yeah. and, you know, maybe has a little bit of a floral lift to it. You just you don't really want to be aging that. There was there was a little bit of a, a misconception going around that um that screw caps are actually able to better preserve how a wine is supposed to taste if mm-hmm. it's a if it's a quick drink wine if it's it, it's not one that you want to be aging. Where they're saying, oh yeah, no, it's going to keep all of the oxygen out. And it's actually the opposite. The screw caps actually do not as good a job at at keeping those wines free of of a lot of exposure to oxygen really because i've heard the opposite or at least for newer screw caps i know that there's been a lot of development on that they might they might be developing it more the um the last study that i read was uh was out of france it was um it was biased though because this guy was a cork (laughs) manufacturer (laughs) oh yeah there there might have been a conflict of interest there might have been a slight conflict of interest there but he, you know, he said it in a very compelling way and with yeah. a French accent. So, hmm. uh, but okay. no, they, they I were, have to look into that. But they were saying the guy was saying uh, that they spend a lot of time actually trying to figure out just how much oxygen will get in through it. Mm-hmm. Um, but then you also have that problem of uh, of the occasional cork getting through that just is completely messed up. Yeah. So I can only imagine the disparagement. Mm-hmm. Between those two, he said that that was maybe like one in ten thousand corks or something like that. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm sure that that's not the, the well, case. Well, uh, but a common thing with corks is cork taint, um, mm-hmm. and I something crazy. It, the, I don't remember the exact statistic, but it's a lot higher than you would think. The yeah. actual percentage of bottles that are corked, you know, benefits and cons to both, I suppose. It, a screw cap is normally for a wine that's meant to be drunk young. It's just not going to have the same micro oxygenation yeah. that a cork will for yeah. a wine that'll age. Yeah, in fact, they even um, it, there's a there's a cool little thing about the size of the bottle, the volume of what it is that is being introduced to that oxygen, and the cork itself. Because when you have like a a, a grand crew mm-hmm. champagne, the way that they want to age that, I'm sure you know, but the way that they want to age that is actually in these huge bottles. Mm-hmm. Um with that tiny little cork still yeah because they're they're wanting to introduce all of that volume at a much slower rate mm-hmm. um than they would a, a, a 750 milliliter bottle which is your standard size yeah so that's that's an interesting thing what's what's the oldest wine you think you've ever had um not older than like a decade yeah when you start getting into the price range of wines that can go past that it's far out of what i can purchase yeah. at the moment <laughs> yeah there is there's a, a couple of wines that we ended up selling uh out of my shop that were were in the the thousand range mm-hmm. and it, those were were super old and actually i think a lot of what was being paid for was just the cabinet that it came in yeah because <laughs> it lit, i mean at, at that point they're they're getting into some luxury stuff yeah i think the oldest one i've had though is actually a chateauneuf du pop Oh really? Wow! It was what delicious. vintage. Was it? Do you remember? Oh gosh, it's been it's been over two years since I've had it. Um, but I I believe it was at least at least a decade old. Okay, it was right in that kind of like ninety dollar range or mm-hmm. eighty to eighty to ninety dollar. Yeah, and it was gorgeous. It was a gorgeous wine. But at that mm-hmm. point, with with that one, you actually are starting to get uh, flavor notes like. 
gasoline. Yeah. <laughs> and mm-hmm. it was, yep. And I was so surprised. I'm like, wow, it's like fruit and gasoline and I love it. <laughs> yeah. No, that, that is something. It's more common in white wines than in red wines, I think, mm. at least at younger things. That's actually a, a petrol is a note that people will commonly call for Riesling. Yeah. And that will evolve into the kind of like that gasoline smell oh. if given enough age in the bottle. It was so enjoyable though. Yeah. And it was, I mean, it was clear on the sides. Mm-hmm. That's, it had so little pigment in it by the, by the time that we had opened it. Yeah. Oh man. Uh, so, I mean, now that we're, now that we're getting into, to talking about some of these, uh, different varietals and how they age and, and the different ways that those can actually be highlighted by aging per varietal, let's, let's get into the meat of, of this episode. And we're going to be starting off with the whites. So when we're when we're talking about these, we wanted to go through a couple of different things. We wanted to talk about their environment, and we wanted to talk about the styles and kind of the the flavor profiles that you can have with these styles as well. So starting off with uh, Chardonnay, we we wanted to talk about some of that. A lot of Chardonnay is coming out of California. Mm-hmm. You have Chardonnay that's coming out of uh, of France. What are what are yeah. some of these climates that we're looking at? Well, Chardonnay is. Uh... You just mentioned France and um, California. Really, it's grown all around the world, and that's because it's capable of growing in very cool climates all the way through to very hot climates. Mm-hmm. Um, and as you progress up that scale, you know, so if you pick up a Chablis, which is one of the cooler areas that Chardonnay is grown, that's a region uh, in France. It's actually part of Burgundy, technically, mm. um, but it's the northernmost part. It's actually it's something like 50 or 80 kilometers north of the Cote d'Or, which is kind of the heart of Burgundy. So fairly cool climate. You're going to be getting like green fruits, some minerality, very high acid, like bracingly high acid. I actually really like Chablis for that reason. And when you start getting warmer, your flavors start to develop into more orchard fruits like yeah. red apples. And then the hotter you get, you can get into stone fruits. You can get into tropical fruits, melons, pineapples. Yeah. That sort of flavor. So when you start getting into like California Chardonnays and some of the hotter sites, you can really, you know, pick that quality up in the wine very ripe tropical fruits, a lot of, you know, peaches and nectarines um, and still a lot of citrus. Yeah, um, yeah. Uh, most white wines are. Uh, we kind of talked about this briefly last time, but you know, white wines just kind of tend to be citrusy in general. Yeah, and so like I know for for California though, the the style is very different. Typically, the thing that we were known for for the longest time was just that big American oak, mm-hmm. buttery, full of vanilla, very creamy flavor. This stuff is typically going to be really uh, uh, heavy body. Whereas in France, we are looking at more of those subtle, really green fruits, like you were saying. Yeah. So those those are some of the different styles that. Well, not always out of France, because uh, in the Mackinac region, uh, which is also part of Burgundy, that's in mm. the southern part. They they do uh, kind of go with that oaked uh, malolactic thing, and part of the reason why Chardonnay can stand up to that, um, you know, it, it's not an aromatic grape, so it doesn't have all these floral characteristics that are going to kind of be destroyed if you try and age it in, in a barrel. But it does have tons of acid that could be played with. Yeah, and, and so uh, that's kind of why you can get these, because uh, in Chablis, you know, you 
some producers are now going to an oaked style, but most of your, at least your basic level Chablis is going to be, uh, you know, unoaked. Um, and, you know, a lot of producers, even in California, will do unoaked Chardonnay just because it's yeah. the style that they want. And Chardonnay just is the kind of grape that can really handle all of that manipulation mm-hmm. um, and still, it still express itself in a good way in a variety of these styles. Yeah. And I mean, my favorite wines are are typically actually champagnes. I, I love anything bubbly. And Chardonnay is also the primary primary grape that is grown for champagne. Mm-hmm. If I'm not mistaken, the, the process of the discovery of champagne was by accident. Yeah. Because it was actually way too cold in champagne in order to keep fermentation going. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, it gets too cold, it halts the fermentation process, and then they ended up having it, you know, get hot during the day. So yep. it would start up again. I, I forget how long it was until until the uh, the guy that discovered that it would actually tasted good was like, well, fine, we'll serve it to somebody. Maybe we'll we'll serve it to the British. It was a while. I know uh, Dom Perignon. He's kind of considered to be like the father of mm. champagne. He actually spent a lot of his time trying to have that not happen. Yeah, he was he was really upset about it. Yeah. And then eventually he was like, well, I mean, I'll sell it to the British. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> you know? and, and then it became a race to see who could make it the least sweet. Yeah. And now it's, you know, at the top houses, you're paying for some of the most expensive wine in the world. <laughs> yeah. Oh, my gosh. And they are delicious. As far as those the more green flavors, though, uh, we talked a lot about this in the last episode, but we also have Sauvignon Blanc, mm-hmm. which is very popular, grown throughout the world at this point. Yeah. We're still talking about a, a cooled, moderate climate. This is a highly aromatic grape. Mm-hmm. Um, so when yeah. we say aromatic, not to cut you off, but when we say aromatic in the wine world, what we're talking about when it comes to grapes is like Riesling, Gavouche Demeanor, uh, Sauvignon Blanc, Viognier, these white wines that just have these really like explosive almost aromas uh typically highly floral very complex so if you hear someone say an aromatic grape that's that's kind of what they mean it just has a very pronounced intense nose in the in in the case of sauvignon blanc you're getting a lot of those green fruits you'll typically get passion fruit even in some cases green pepper Mm -hmm. Uh, you'll actually get a lot of vegetable notes off of it asparagus Asparagus. and particularly out of new zealand that can be something that's found in sauvignon blanc yeah i haven't i need to try more from france because i've I've had a couple of sauvignon blancs that i've really loved from france Mm -hmm. but i haven't found one that really gripped my attention yeah well it's a very different style than in new zealand in particular um when you're looking at the Sauvignon Blanc that comes out of France, you're probably looking at the Loire Valley, Sancerre, that area. And it's a lot cooler there. And so you don't get as ripe. So those more vegetal characteristics don't really come through as mm-hmm. much. They tend to be more on the minerally end of, of the so spectrum. So this is completely about the the climate itself being what affects. For the most part, yeah. Because yeah. You, you can't. You know, in New Zealand, you, you can get these grapes to a, just a different degree of ripeness at harvest than you can in Sancerre or Pouilly Fume. I can never pronounce it. Pouilly Fume. Yeah, that one. <laughs> uh, I'm so bad at pronouncing things in French. Please forgive me. I, oh, I know yeah. that's like a sin. No, no, no. But... It's it, it was actually like one of the main things that would happen while I was working is somebody would come in and mispronounce a French wine, and then I would also not know how to pronounce it. Yeah. So it was basically just us continually saying, <laughs> "Well, maybe it's spelt like," and then mm-hmm. you know, yeah. Eventually, I kind of got uh, the lay of the land, but I'm I'm 
I, I actually did have one customer who spoke French and she corrected my pronunciation of, uh, of something. And I was just like, Hey, do you have like 10 minutes? (laughs) (laughs) I just, I, I want you to just help me out here. Got to be smart with your resources, man. Hey, I mean, if if she's going to walk in and know how to pronounce things and correct me, then, then she just got a job. Yeah. So that's, that's how that happened. Yeah, but going back to Sauvignon Blanc, something I do want to point out, um, we mentioned, you know, green flavors. Um, that isn't, when we say green flavors, we're kind of usually talking more about like herbaceous or vegetal mm-hmm. flavors. So you mentioned the bell pepper. I mentioned asparagus, um, that, that kind of green. So mm-hmm. when people say green, that's typically what they meant. But, you know, then you have your green fruits, which yes. is green apple, green pears and stuff like yeah. that. Just a little. Uh, a little distinction distinction there, there yeah. not to confuse anyone listening yeah and you'll you'll also get a lot of that citric acid in there this is also a highly acidic wine um you're going to end up getting uh, a lot of a lot of lemon a lot of lemon zest a lot of lime mm-hmm. also um, it's malic acid but pardon it's malic acid oh, no kidding. not citric acid yeah oh yeah. i didn't know that actually mm-hmm. huh it rests on the tongue completely different that's right but yeah so then we uh moving on to riesling Riesling uh, is known for for coming out of Germany. A lot of people know uh, know mm-hmm. about that one. So we are still yeah. talking about a fairly a fairly cool climate for a lot of this. Cool to moderate. What are what are we getting out of Riesling? Riesling is one of those really fascinating wines because, as far as the flavor is concerned, it can be very very intense but mm-hmm. the thing that people go for in riesling is all about the nose yeah it, it is the aromatic grape yeah uh, so it's full of flowers it's full of citrus fruit depending on where it's grown in um it's full of you know stone fruits you can even get tropical fruits if it's uh like a late harvest style like mm-hmm. you can get in alsace uh, where they can get these grapes to hang on the vine for a little bit longer, unlike in Mosul, where you kind of like have to, you know, pick it when you can. You can get these styles of wine that do. And in certain areas in Germany, uh, you can get these late harvest styles as well. Um, and they will develop like tropical fruit and honey. And Riesling is interesting because Riesling uh, can also age very well. Mm-hmm. Um, like we were talking about earlier with some of those petrol notes that that can come through in, mm-hmm. a, in a well-aged Riesling. Yeah, and part of that is the acidic structure. Riesling has fairly high acidity normally, and so that is something that will allow it to age um, and not have all those high-toned things just completely fall out mm-hmm. like they would in wines that might not have the structure to support that. It's also interesting to note with uh, with Riesling that you do actually have a range of sweetness that can be included in it. Um, I was surprised to find out how many people think that Riesling is just a dessert wine. Yeah. Uh, because some of the best ones that I've had, uh, specifically Dr. Lucen is, is one that I really like. I think he's, he's really mm. good value. Yeah. Um, but dry Rieslings and they're just absolutely delicious. Yeah. Well, so part of the reason why people tend to think that is Germany tends to ship us all their sweet wines because they know Americans like sweet oh, wine. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That it's part of the reason, but also, you don't really know we we could and probably should do a whole episode on german wine law and what the labeling terms mm. are because uh, it's actually pretty complicated i would imagine also fairly strict well strict in some ways and not in others so one of the ways that it's not very strict is the sweetness of the wine 
Um, unless you're getting into like, uh, Baranosadesa or, uh, Chalkin Baranosadesa or Ice Vine. Those are, you know, just mandatory yeah. sweet styles. But up until that in the Pradikots system, you can have up to medium sweet in most of the categories. Uh, the one exception though, if, if you see, uh, uh, Grosses Gavex on a bottle, that's a dry wine. Mm. Uh, Grosses Gavex is, uh, a labeling term that the farmers in Germany kind of got together <laughs> to start using the term mandates that it is a dry wine. Mm. So that one, you can know it'll typically have like a little GG thing on the bottle. So um, that's something to look for. But yeah, in, in general though, you don't really know what you're getting. Alsace actually has a very similar issue where they don't really require a sweetness label on their products in general. Some producers yeah. will do it just for clarity for their customers, but it, German wine, unfortunately, kind of has that problem as well. So you don't always know what you're getting. Yeah. Uh, unless you know the producer. Yeah, that's... I mean, Dr. Lucen is pretty uh, pretty consistent. Dr. Heidemann, that's, that's fairly well marketed. I haven't had a lot that surprised me against the labeling. But it also wasn't something that I was looking for when I was when I was tasting it. So nothing yeah. really kind of, you know, stuck out as, oh, this is supposed to be dry. This is very clearly sweet. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, so I've, I've never encountered any issues in the marketplace as far as that's concerned. But I could imagine that for somebody who's actually doing wine buying, mm -hmm. that could end up being a, yeah. an issue. Yeah. I, I do know some people like a woman I did my level three with, she would go on and on about how much she hated trying to buy German wine in the States because she never knew what she was getting in the bottle. Oh my gosh. Uh, so moving on to our reds, uh, unless we have anything to add to our Rieslings. Uh, I don't think so. We're going to be going over, like we said, Cabernet Sauvignon, Pinot Noir, Merlot, and Syrah. So starting with Cabernet Sauvignon, uh, we're talking about uh, much, much warmer climates in, mm -hmm. in this case. Yeah. And we've touched on this a lot because we were talking about Virginia mm -hmm. and how... How we need to stop growing it in Virginia. <laughs> yeah. or, or, or find something. Yeah. Yeah. Mer Merlot is the way to go uh, for Virginia, we think. But we are talking about um, California. We're talking about a lot of areas that not only get a lot of heat, but also retain a lot of heat mm -hmm. as well. In these cases, we're we're talking about a lot of black fruits. So you're you're talking blackberry, uh, blueberry. Mm -hmm. These are big, boisterous wines in yeah. a lot of cases. They have a lot of tannins. You can get coffee notes in there. You can get chocolate notes in there. The the tannins are typically going to be very high. Hopefully, balanced off with that acid. Mm -hmm. But you can actually get a lot of really interesting character out of the tannins in these in these wines in particular. Yeah. Cabernet Sauvignon is kind of one of those um, weird grapes in that a lot of red grapes are going to kind of have like either high tannins or high acidity or, you know, that balance isn't really there. Cabernet Sauvignon does have both of those. And that's part of what makes uh, cab-based wines ageable mm -hmm. is the high tannins and high acid just gives it a lot of ability to age. It, it also tends to get a little bit of a, a herbaceous bite to it. So... Black currant is a that's a fruit, but um, black currant is an experience. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's hard to really know in the states what it smells like because it wasn't available for a very long time. You couldn't plant it. Um, you can now, so it's easier to get access to. But uh, you can also get black currant leaf. You can get bell pepper in your cabernet sauvignon. You can get kind of stemmy notes. Um, in certain areas, you'll get kind of a mintiness. 
So it's uh it's herbaceous, but it's not quite in the same way that you know Sauvignon Blanc is herbaceous. It's not like the you know asparagus end of no. And a lot of a lot of times I find uh, it also will carry a lot of wood notes. I'll get a lot of Spanish yeah. cedar in that. That's mainly um, coming from the oak. That's typically going to be used on it. Yeah, uh, I I don't think I've ever had an unoaked Cabernet Sauvignon. I actually don't think I have either. And uh, also the the notes that that I'll typically get off of one that I really enjoy will also include that kind of more truffle. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can even get like oyster mushroom in there, moral mushroom in mm-hmm. there. Uh, really just delicious, savory notes uh, inside of the wine, balanced out by that wood, so that yeah, you know, we're not we're not talking about uh, uh, savory in in the sense of um, of feeling greasy or anything like that. It's just it's aroma. And it, I, I mean, Cabernet is, is one that I go crazy for. Yeah. Um, unfortunately, dropping off in popularity uh, among millennials, but still a delicious experience, especially if you you know what to look for. Uh, and one one uh, fun little bit of trivia about Cabernet Sauvignon is the fact that it's actually a crossbreed between Cab Franc and Sauvignon Blanc, which is probably why we were getting the the notes that that we were talking about. Mm-hmm. What are some of the ones that you've had that you've really enjoyed that are, are kind of in that, you know, uh, 10 to 15, uh, then 20 to, I would say 20, 20 to 30 is where I, I really start loving mm-hmm. what I'm drinking. Uh, so it, Chile is putting out a lot of Cabernet Sauvignon right now. Um, and, you know, they have a hot climate. They can get it to that ripeness. I have seen it from some Spanish producers. And, you know, Spanish wines tend to be not super expensive. Yeah. Spanish, well, Spanish wines, you, you'll, they kind of have like their version of Cabernet Sauvignon. Mm -hmm. And that's typically what you're going to be served if you go anywhere. Yeah. But I haven't actually tried a straight Cabernet Sauvignon grown from that region. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's not super common at all, but I would imagine it would be delicious. Yeah. I I had one at a friend's house and it was absolutely incredible. We need to find this friend. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I will find you. I I will drink your wine. (laughs) We will raid your cellar. Watch out. (laughs) They have a straight up cellar. I I don't know if she has a full cellar, but she has like an entire room. That's just like wine racks (laughs) behind her kitchen. Yeah. Wow. (laughs) Yeah. Oh gosh, it's what I when dream. I grow up yeah, what I dream to have. Oh gosh, uh, another uh, wine that I really enjoy that can be used as the the base or the the feature inside of champagne or a uh, Cremant de Bergeron is going to be Pinot Noir. Yep, uh, there are two places that I know of that really uh, seem to do do well. It is going to be your cooler climates. Mm-hmm. My two favorite places to get it from are obviously Burgundy, yeah, um, and also from Willamette Valley, Oregon, mm-hmm. which is interesting because the the way that both of those landscapes are formed is actually from the same type of glacial cuttings, mm-hmm. which was always my my selling line, yeah. Even though people hadn't tried wine from Burgundy before, <laughs> yeah, they really seem to enjoy yeah. that little bit of trivia. But it is actually very, it is very true. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's something that a lot of winemakers are really excited about. And obviously, I'm excited about, too, when they start talking about uh, how that terroir is going to be featured inside of the Pinot Noir. This is a very delicate grape. Yeah. Um, it's not very finicky, very hard to grow. Oh, it's 
it's super susceptible to rot you, you can't have it in like a wet climate yeah really thin skins really thin skins yeah, yeah. and that's part of you know it's a low tannin wine so unlike cabernet sauvignon you can get up to like a medium level of tannins mm-hmm. depending on where they're grown but it, overall it's much lower in its tannic structure than most reds are and that makes it a great easy drinking wine yeah. for a lot of people if you don't like super heavy tannic reds try a pinot noir and see if you like it oh and it's like it's it's not universal but it's kind of like a universal thing that you can pair with mm-hmm. foods if yeah it's great for thanksgiving oh yeah. yeah oh my god we sold so much pinot noir yeah. around thanksgiving literal literal carts yeah. full yeah and it's it's interesting some some producers of pinot noir they don't get that uh really delicate because this is a this is a, a light to medium bodied mm-hmm. wine as well yeah but a lot of the more popular ones it's like very clearly that they've put a lot of other stuff in here including mm-hmm. syrah mm-hmm. um and so a lot of the jammier ones they'll even use uh freeze drying techniques yeah in order to try and boost the the body on this but if you're eating pizza we actually have pizza in the room right now um that is getting me nice and hungry but uh <laughs> pizza uh you can pair this with with red meats mm-hmm. um you can pair this with with turkey obviously yeah. pair this with duck mm-hmm. it's gonna give you a lot of those more red fruits it's gonna give you cherry it's gonna give you raspberry mm-hmm. i absolutely adore pinot noir yeah it also uh, something else to say about it is it tends to develop very quickly in terms of developing tertiary characteristics mm-hmm. so you can have a Pinot Noir that's only a year old and it already has a very pronounced like mushroom smell mm. to it um, or, or you know, like a dirt soil kind of smell, it, particularly out of Burgundy. Um, it, it definitely can happen in, you know, Willamette Valley and in Oregon and Washington. But it, just something to know. And a lot of people love those notes. That's what they go for when they're they're looking into Pinot Noir. Mm-hmm. It's it's just such a delightful delightful wine yeah and uh, if if i had to if i had to choose one to to always drink it would definitely be pinot noir especially when we're talking about um are a lot of your uh your rosé sparkling wines they're mm-hmm. gonna they're gonna mostly be pinot noir yeah and those big cherry flavors paired with that minerality yeah it's really nice it's gorgeous really nice next up we have merlot what do we know about Merlot other than the fact that for the longest time, everybody thought that it was just a sweet wine? <laughs> so I actually kind of feel bad for Merlot because I have had some delicious Merlots. We can grow it really well here in Virginia. We have some producers that are doing a great job with it. Uh, who, who in particular? Because now I'm I'm planning field trips. Uh, Gabrielli Rose, and I am so sorry if I am mispronouncing his name. Literally everybody in the state pronounces it differently, but he's a very well-known winemaker here. He kind of helped build uh, the wine industry in, in Virginia, actually. He has his own production facility now, and he makes a beautiful Merlot. Mm. You can also find really good – they're still typically going to be blends because it is Bordeaux, but you can find very um, Merlot-dominant wines on the right bank of Bordeaux, and you mm-hmm. can find some that are even 100% Merlot, and you would never know it. I had one – oh, my gosh. Like, I will remember this wine for the rest of my life, and it sucks because it there's, like, one bottle that I know of <laughs> still in our area because it was uh, brought in by someone who no longer is distributing – and that, that producer was a very small producer on top of that. So they don't produce a lot. And vintage variation, it's probably not going to taste that way next no. year. But it was 100% Merlot. And it, I swore up and down that it was a cab Merlot blend because it just had so much depth of character. Oh, wow. 
people i think part of the reason merlot got a bad reputation is it is a very medium wine so it has medium body medium acid medium tannins the flavor intensity tends to be kind of on the medium end um but you know when you have a good site and a good winemaker you can really concentrate those flavors and get something really nice um and for the longest time you also had a lot of uh, a lot of hatred being generated simply by uh the movie mm-hmm. oh gosh uh i can't remember it either paul giamatti it's it's mm-hmm. paul giamatti but, yeah um literally people don't don't understand that like movies social media that sort of thing it really does have a huge impact on industry because mm-hmm. when you're looking for culture, you look for it in the products of culture. Yeah. And so a lot of people are just turned off to Merlot by by that movie and that one infamous scene, mm-hmm. which description I will not give you <laughs> in polite company. <laughs> yeah. It's it's disgusting. Um, but Merlot itself can be such a beautiful, mm-hmm. uh, beautiful wine. A lot of black fruit. Yeah. You can get, uh, I've had ones that would come around with like black plum. Mm-hmm. You're still getting that blackberry. Mm-hmm. And it's typically not going to be as aggressive as Cabernet Sauvignon. So you're not, you're not talking about, you can have tannin characters there, but it's going to be more what we refer to as jammy in a lot of cases. Yeah. Uh, just a, a brief recap of, of that. Uh, jammy wines are, are going to be the ones that taste like overly ripened fruit to mm-hmm. hyper ripe fruit yeah. as opposed to those more constricted just off the vine yeah type fresh deals. and if you've ever gone strawberry picking you you'll you know the difference you know you bite into one and it's kind of sour and yeah kind of makes you click your mouth a little bit as opposed to the ones that you know are just super ripe and delicious mm-hmm. and flood your mouth with flavor and you mentioned the the black fruit uh, merlot is interesting and that can also have red fruit in mm. in a cooler site or can have a mix of both um well, and like you were fruit. saying with that bordeaux you were you were swearing that it was a mixture of the two i'm, mm-hmm. I'm guessing that you were getting a little bit of that uh that red fruit well it wasn't that for that wine it was that it had this really incredible like chocolatey mm. uh cocoa coffee flavor that um merlot can definitely do when it's aged in oak in particular mm. but it, i not normally to that degree like Cabernet Sauvignon tends to go more toward. And I, I need to correct myself. I said it's a medium body. Uh, that It actually tends to be fuller bodied because it tends to be a high alcohol or higher alcohol grape, um, which is why it, it makes a good blending partner for Cabernet Sauvignon. It can give Cabernet Sauvignon um, more, more just a, a rounder body to it from mm-hmm. that additional texture from the alcohol. Without it, it can because of that high acid and high tannin just be a very aggressive <laughs> wine um, it can be and, so. and in, in particular if you get one that's out of balance it it can be one of the uh, a pretty bad experience yeah so um, merlot uh, will help balance that yeah another just you mentioned france and producers one thing to realize about a lot of uh, a lot of things that happen in france is that the laws there when when you die, your property has to be split between mm-hmm. all of your children evenly. Mm-hmm. There is no way to leave it to one of them. And if you're in one of these places like Bordeaux, the property has to be used in order to, to grow wine grapes. Mm-hmm. So it is really unfortunate that that was something that's either not being produced or not being distributed anymore. Yeah. Um, and that does happen. So 
just just remember your good experiences. That's yeah. that's the only thing that I, I have to say about that. Uh, so now we're moving on to Syrah or Shiraz. Tell me what the difference is between that that being a a, a name. Yeah, so uh, Shiraz is just the Australian way of saying it. Mm. It's kind of like how Pinot Gris and Pinot Grigio are the same grape, mm-hmm. but you know one of them is french one of them is italian and and you can probably guess which one's which yeah and so <laughs> it, that has become now a a uh, style signifier so for Syrah, that's the french more old world style more restrained um typically from cooler climates as well i mean Syrah doesn't need or Syrah doesn't need a, a moderate to a hot climate to be able to grow but um you know australia is very hot so it can get super super ripe there and uh they get to that like baked fruit almost jammy character really like just super full body wines yeah i mean typically when you look at the names that they have they literally will say things like jam jar Mm -hmm. it's it's literally like this the most ripe big fruits that you can imagine Mm -hmm. and so uh shiraz is that style whereas syrah is the more um black fruit um it tends to have spice yeah, character to it a lot it. of pepper pepper yeah um it tends to be kind of meaty too especially in the rhone valley where it's primarily grown in france which means if you're making like a, a meal that is just a lot of really strong flavors you're matching strength with strength this can match mm-hmm. pretty much anything that you put on the table yeah and uh, or overpower it if you're not doing that correctly <laughs> yeah that's very true so especially if you're going to go for a Shiraz, then you're definitely run the risk of overpowering. I normally recommend uh, when people because they would they would come in and they'd be like, oh, well, I'm having a barbecue. I'm like, I just point them to the Shiraz. Yeah, that that's a really good pairing. Mm-hmm. And it's also a grape that like Cabernet Sauvignon and uh, Merlot tend to be blended together. Uh, Syrah tends to, especially in the Rhone Valley, but uh, Australia, I think, does this as well at certain wineries it tends to be blended with grenache and mouved and Mm -hmm. um again it's it's to kind of help round out the body give it more dimension grenache is uh like a red fruit grape and mouved tends to be uh like a meaty character it kind of adds more that quality to the wine so now we have that concludes our our grape overview and now as we teased in the last episode, Michael has a challenge for me. Yeah. Uh, and just to let you know, we are going to be posting some slides on our Instagram. If you uh, haven't followed us, then then we would love to to see you there. Message us with your questions. At Laidback Lush. Yes, Laidback Lush. Uh, links. But uh, now we have a mystery wine. And since we've gone through the description of all of these, the pressure is on. Mm-hmm. So as you're uh, as you're smelling this wine now, uh, we we literally got this wine maybe a little less than an hour ago. Yeah. Um, and I had to have him walk and go get my <laughs> my laundry detergent so that I could I could buy this without his knowledge. So what are we smelling? What are we tasting? Don't tell me varietal yet. Just tell me the flavor notes. All right. So we got loads of red fruit on here. We're starting to get up there in tannin for what I think this is, but um like medium level of tannins starting to get a little bit of earthiness to it a little bit of mushroom like a baby bella mushroom kind of smell the acidity isn't super high how's it how's the color looking pretty pale um very ruby it's a actually very pretty color 
but uh in terms of you know depth of color it, it's definitely pale can very easily see the stem at the bottom of the glass through it very nice color um pretty up there on the nose intensity as well it's running a little hot i'm gonna say this is probably in like 13 percent, maybe 14 percent range I'm trying not to cue Gabe with my eyes right now, and it's very difficult. <laughs> He's doing very well. <laughs> um, let's see, did I miss anything for structure? We covered tannin, acid, body, alcohol. Now, this is definitely a fuller body. It's not the fullest I've ever had, but it, it definitely has some weight to it. Uh, so am I, am I allowed to guess now? I think I think you went with your tried and true Willamette Valley Pinot Noir. <laughs> I did go with Pinot Noir. This okay. is uh, the A to Z Pinot Noir. Okay. It is out of Oregon, if I am not mistaken. Uh, let me go get the bottle real quick, though. It's a it, it's a very nice wine. I I am very much enjoying it. I I, I felt kind of bad because as soon as I smelled it, I knew exactly what it was. <laughs> I mean, you're supposed to the um. So we we were trying to film this or film this. We were trying to record this yesterday, and I uh, I had another bottle picked out for him, and uh, I tasted it during the episode, and I started wincing. <laughs> but it wasn't because it was a bad wine. It was actually uh, Chateau Smith Cabernet Sauvignon out of mm -hmm. Washington State, but it just didn't have the profile of Cabernet Sauvignon. No, whatsoever. I, I got it completely wrong. I called it as a as a uh zinfandel yeah and when i when i tasted it i knew that he wasn't going to get it because it just didn't it didn't fit the profile whatsoever mm -hmm. of of how you do that i mean still showing the difference that terroir can can give to a grape and more than likely a lot of the practices that are done there are, are fairly unique i actually love uh that particular producer but i needed to get something that was consistent this is a to z wine out of oregon and it is it, it's it's a great wine yeah um it has been aged for for uh four years so when he was talking about we we mentioned it earlier that you can have a lot of character start to come through mm -hmm. in that aging process so that's yeah. why he was saying he was picking up the little bit of baby bella yeah yeah it, it's it's not as pronounced as it would be i would expect out of like burgundy but it's definitely there yeah and i was actually spot on for the alcohol it's 13.5 yeah that's like, that's why I was like I was trying so hard not to say yes that is correct because you were just spot on every time. <laughs> so I mean I'm impressed. That's that's great and uh, yeah uh, we're gonna have to do this again. I think next time uh, I should be the one that has to blind taste. I, I'm down so that I can face plant on because <laughs> because I get so far inside of my own head inside of blind tastings. I was gonna be really mean. And I was going to bring you a uh, Bordeaux that was like <laughs> a crazy blend of yeah. like four or five grapes. Just be yeah. like, well, you did your W sets. So. <laughs> Get real smart with you about it. That And that is going to be fun. I, I, I do think that we should try that out as well. Mm -hmm. um, but don't do that to me. <laughs> okay. I won't. We'll, we'll, have, to me. we'll, we'll do a, a double challenge episode down the road or something to yeah. see if we can get a hard one. So I think uh, we definitely need to have a field trip. Mm -hmm. um, like I said, we are going to be posting some stuff on our social media, our basic wine types, maybe even have some basic wine pairings up there for you. Well, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, we, we appreciate every one of you who's listening to us. Please send us a, a DM with questions. Uh, if you want to just talk wine, that's why we started this channel. We yeah. love talking about this stuff. Um, and yeah, we, we look forward to 
hearing from you and and uh we look forward to providing you more content definitely take care everybody cheers